As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? The frame shift from aging is an amorphous kind of process too. You know, when I was a kid, this is what came, went through my mind was, oh, okay, cancer is bad, but but aging aging is kind of like the meta disease. Like if you cure aging, then you, you, you get all the other diseases for free. Once you feel that, it's really hard to think about working on anything else. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from deep inside the Silicon Valley future machine. I am your host, Danny Fortz, and I am also the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And a couple weeks ago, the paper sent me along to meet Laura Deming, who is this week's guest. Now, Laura is a former child prodigy who, for the last dozen years, has been working on that very vexing problem of aging. Now, keep in mind, Laura is only 24 years old. So, yes, dozen years, 24 years old. Your math is correct. Now, Laura is the founder of the Longevity Fund, which is a venture capital fund she started actually when she was a teenager, and it backs startups working on ways to combat aging. So, a couple weeks back, I toddled along down a dingy little side street in the south of Market area in San Francisco, and I must admit I was a bit confused because the address led me to an apartment building, which looked like one of these standard buildings you find in San Francisco, full of overpriced bachelor pads. But one of those bachelor pads was actually Deming's office, and she gave me a very quick tour. All right, pretty chill, beautiful day. Gorgeous. Hey. Hey, how's it going? Hi, I see you again. Nice to see you. Do you think we're talking down here? Nice. Blackboards, other... Blackboards? I haven't seen a blackboard in a long time. Yes, the idea was to put things in the space where if you walked in and you're a scientist, you feel like more at home uh, than in other environments. Now, I meet a lot of precocious type of folks in this job, but Deming is right up there. So her ultimate goal is to not necessarily make death optional, but rather to make it a choice of when. So basically to allow all of us someday, someday soon perhaps, to decide when we want to die, which is a very weird concept, I know, but we get into that quite in depth, as well as a bunch of other stuff. We talk about how understanding animals on a genetic level can help us combat aging in humans, We also talk about getting better with age, not worse, and maybe, just maybe, being able to turn off menopause. Yeah. I know that's a lot to bite off, so I will let Laura explain, which she can obviously do much better than I, so we will get to that right now. Enjoy. We're here at the Longevity Fund. 
a longevity <laughs> fund hq <laughs> this is yeah you can see the books on the walls yes the exactly pictures of scientists yeah are those all scientists behind you yes yeah, so like these a bunch are... <laughs> of like there's a whole gallery of black and white pictures these are the um most famous scientists in history when they were kids so that's nikola tesla on the beach that uh, he's looking but he's oh he's looking kind of like <laughs> kind of bit come hither that yeah that that's yep tesla tesla in his prime and then francis crick as a kid and oh, oh Claude shannon on a unicycle that's my favorite right <laughs> and why why do you put pictures of them when they're kids or young well I, I think we have this conception of scientists as they always have photos taken of them after they made their major discovery like decades after yeah. and so you always get they're all of, crusty old dudes who spent their life in the lab exactly you get a feeling that's kind of like oh uh, you know uh, of course they are meant to be the, but like, there's something about seeing Claude Shannon on a unicycle where you're just like or like Niels Bohr with his mom or like these are human beings they're playful they're creative they make mistakes and they come from unexpected places. And some, something about that kind of appealed to us as an aesthetic. Right. And so Longevity Fund, what are you doing here? What are, if you can just explain what this is and where, where you are in the evolution. Because yeah. I think last time we, we met about a year ago. Exactly. When we did the aging special, which people seem to enjoy, which is great. But obviously things have happened since then. So if you just give a sense of what you're up to now. and Exactly. So I think the macro picture is the space in general has changed enormously in the past seven years. Right When we started, there was very little investment, maybe two companies in 10 years. And nobody wanted to kind of come into in space. aging specifically in, in longevity specifically and that's really changed so you've seen you know five to ten billion just kind of enormous amounts of capital flow in um, amazing researchers and scientists also come into the space in the past couple years and we're super excited about that but i think what's even more important is you've seen kind of the rise of you know a whole new class of founder right so there's been kind of a traditional set of folks starting companies in biotech who are absolutely incredible and coming out of pharma but there's been this feeling that you know if you're amazing grad student you kind of have to go into industry spend maybe five to ten years there and then maybe kind of leave you know go to a larger position and then only then kind of can you consider starting a company and what's been really fascinating is seeing how how drops in cost and kind of the increase in funding available from biotech has made it more and more feasible for uh, a new class of founder to kind of emerge and so i think what we're really excited about with age one is to help that new class of founder start companies and, and be supported during that period of time and for them to understand what's required to take their incredible you know intelligence entrepreneurial talent etc and kind of deploy that into this very kind of you know hard area of therapeutic development in biotech and so age one is your incubator exactly and so they go upstairs where the blackboards are (laughs) exactly so so h1 is our accelerator that we started based on our observation from longevity portfolio you know a that this new class of founder was emerging but also b that you know if we looked at our first portfolio you know we have five companies in total they've raised over 500 million dollars between you know five companies and follow-on funding they're over 1.5 billion in kind of market cap across all of them what what was fascinating was you know the first company to liquidity the first company kind of really um you know sort of start uh, interesting clinical trials that company came out of some of the most out there science in terms of unity exactly so unity biotechnology we had we had ned on the podcast last year oh amazing yeah Yeah, yeah. ned Ned is absolutely absolutely incredible i mean but, but that company it came from a very different place you know earlier stage technology, a lot more risk to be uncovered than, than kind of, you know, a phase to ask that you're quiet to create a new company. And so we started age one with the hope of helping a lot more in that area of science and helping a lot more founder-driven companies get started. 
how old are you now? 24? Uh, 24. Yes, I'm yes. 24. And you've been at this for a long time. So could you just give us a, you know, the kind of the quick biography of Laura Deming? That would be great. Sure. So uh, when I was a kid, I loved science, but also was super fascinated by aging and aging research. And when I was 12, emailed a woman called Cynthia Kenyon, who is a professor here at UCSF, or I guess now, now at Calico, you know, just kind of asked, hey, my name is Laura Deming. I'm you know, 11 years old, I live in New Zealand, can I come visit your lab? And she went back within a day and said yes. And so really my whole scientific career is due to her and her, you know, willingness to reply to a random email. But then basically from, from there... From a child. From, <laughs> from a child, yes. <laughs> Why were you interested at 11 years old in aging research? Well, I think in part, you know, I, I definitely seen people that I loved experience the, the kind of symptoms of aging. But I remember also, you know, at one point in time... I was obsessed with cancer even before then. I was like, oh, I'm going to cure cancer, and that's going to be what I'm going to do with my life. Because I'd read about it in a newspaper article or something. Before age 11, you were obsessed with cancer. <laughs> I was just early in the intellectual development phase. And then my dad one day said, oh, you know, like, you know, cancer is just a subset of aging. And I remember just thinking, oh, I guess that makes sense. And then I remember my, my grandma visited, and I kind of realized that what, you know, she was going through something. She didn't have cancer, but she definitely had something. I mean, she wasn't, she wasn't doing as well as she could be. And so that's when I realized, okay, maybe aging is a disease. Aging is a disease. It's just not part of the natural human condition. It's not part of the common vernacular, but it's it's fundamentally true that if you were to prevent aging, you'd prevent every of the major disorders um, to some degree that, that we see around us today. So you're 11 years old. You write to her. You say you're interested. And she says, okay, great. Just come out and hang out. Exactly. So, so she wrote back and said, oh, you know, feel free to come here. I remember running into my, my dad's room and just like pummeling like the, the floor with my fists and like screaming. He like came in and was like, is everything okay? And I was like, oh my gosh, like and I, she went back. Uh, eventually came out for a cousin's wedding and went to visit her lab at UCSF Genentech Hall. Walking into it was absolutely incredible. It's like there's DNA on the walls and on the floors and the chairs made of nucleotides. And so I remember walking out after visiting her lab. And I imagine sort of, images of these things, not actual DNA on the walls. No, literal. Like, so, okay, well, I, this is probably, <laughs> <laughs> there's probably some literal DNA. Well, they have like two to three story high statues of DNA that cross the floor, which is a central huge atrium. The seats are in sort of pentagonal patterns that are reminiscent of the building uh, blocks of DNA. Right. And the carpets have the same pentagonal patterns that represent DNA. And so I remember... So you walked in and were just... I remember walking in and I was just like, my, my tiny puny mind was just blown. It was right. like, whoa, <laughs> right. this is the best thing I've ever seen. And so when I went back to my house that or uh, Prince house that night, I emailed Cynthia and said, I don't care what I have to do. If it's, you know, scrubbing floors or labeling things, can I come work in your lab? And she said, yes. So you just moved? You know, uh, m many months later, uh, my parents found a way to make it work. And it was you know, extremely, extremely incredible of them in retrospect. Um, and we moved. So to did you US. leave school? I never went to school, actually. You never went to school? No, I, I was um, schooled at home my whole life. My, my dad's amazing. He, he was kicked out of a bunch of schools growing up. I mean, he's brilliant, but he, he just kind of, you know, was very rebellious. And then he said, you know, to, to, to us, you guys can go to school if you'd like to, um, but you don't have to. It's your choice. So you never went to school? I might for two years when I was 14, but that, that was the only school that I've ever gone to. But at whatever, three or four, you're like, no, I'm good. I'll just, <laughs> I'll just study at home. Exactly. So like, yeah, you know, you described it. And it's like, well, school sounds great, but I just don't, you know, it doesn't So were you better. homeschooled or were you just independently driven to study what was interested to you, interesting to you? 
I mean, really what happened was my, my dad just has this way of making, you know, people around him feel the love of science. And so he would just talk about science and mathematics. Is he a scientist? He's not a scientist. Really. I mean, he, he studied philosophy at Stanford briefly, but, you know, really he's just kind of a Renaissance man. Like he's interested in everything. Like you could, right. He's like, I don't know, I read uh, Richard Feynman about Richard Feynman's dad. Mm-hmm. And that, that love of just everything right. and like finding things out. That's what my dad really embodied. And so he'd just talk about like Michael Faraday and Humphrey Davy and James Clark Maxwell and like growing up, those guys were my heroes. It was like, those guys were the most incredible humans on earth. Not, and like, not the All Blacks. <laughs> the All Blacks were awesome. The All Blacks <laughs> were very cool. But James Clark Maxwell was way cooler right, than the All Blacks. Right. James Clark Maxwell was the best. Right. And so th- those were kind of the guiding lights. And where were you in uh, New Zealand? Were you in one of the uh, big in, in Auckland, in Remuera, oh, okay. Auckland. So you moved out here. Then you went to MIT at age 14. Exactly. Stayed there for a couple of years. Yep. And then what happened? Uh, went to college, stayed there for a couple of years. And I think the as a scientist, I felt in college that I was working in a couple of labs, doing what I could to create new, uh, new discoveries. But there was this feeling that, okay, you make a drug and then what happens to it? Like, where, where does it go? How does that get into a patient? I just had no clue. And so I started trying to understand how people took the science that we were making and turned it into a drug that a patient could use. And then eventually realized that p- things were getting stuck at the point of getting the science out of the lab. You know, nobody's coming yeah. by the lab asking, you know, how the science is and, and when uh, they can take it out. And so I applied to the business plan competition there, the 100K business plan competition, and with the idea of starting a venture capital fund for, for longevity uh, research and, and for starting companies. And I think the first pitch that I had, it was maybe like a hundred thousand the first year a million dollars the second year and like a hundred million dollars the third year then of course we'd be a billion dollars kind of year five but that obviously would take a while. <laughs> that was the start of it and then i did I you got, win no i was rejected in the first yeah. i mean <laughs> it doesn't sound like much of a business <laughs> yeah i mean it was i was so nice i didn't know anything about yeah. how, how things worked but then um I got an offer to move out here and do a fellowship that kind of gave you $100,000, but you had to drop out of school. And so I was kind of like, well... I and this I, was uh, Peter Thiel. Exactly. This, this was Peter Thiel's fellowship. I didn't have the option to stay in school and, and right. get the funding to do it. Uh, and, so, and so I kind of had to, had to drop everything and come out here. You've raised one fund or two funds now? Uh, two funds, and we've also raised H1, which is our accelerator vehicle. When did you raise the first fund? How old were you then? I think we closed it um, now about seven years ago. So when I was 18 or 19 would, would have been when we closed. Can you actually raise a venture capital fund if you're not like 21? <laughs> <laughs> so this was absolutely hilarious. There would be so many times where about to sign the papers and then we'd realize like I couldn't legally. You're a minor. And so we'd have to add this little like extra signatory at the end where it's like, for those age under 18, and then I'd fax the papers home to my mom and my dad who would like fax. sign. Oh, sorry. I just I like love it. send by email. And then yeah, would, yeah, 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 yeah. Send back. Yeah. It'd always be like a funny last step. We're kind of like we'd be almost there, and the person, and the person would kind of be like, "This is a little bit odd that I'm, I'm right. having this like minor sign, right? Uh, important paperwork." Voiceover describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. Voiceover on settings, so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So you've got the two funds now in the incubator. Why is what you are doing now the time to do it? It's, it's been so exciting the past seven years because you know, when, when I first moved out here, like there's this feeling of hopelessness, like, okay, you know, we're going to try and do this thing. We're going to raise a small amount of money for it, maybe get some signs to move forward. But, you know, like what's really going to happen? Of course, it's going to take a long time. It's going to be expensive. I think the amazing thing is like, you know, three of the first five companies we funded now have drugs in clinic and like really important drugs, drugs that could be like hugely impactful for patient health. You know, one of the first drugs I ever helped out with is now approved. And the amount of funding that's coming now, it's kind of like, okay, we look back and it's like at that point in time, seven years ago, there was no funding, nobody in this area. And now there's like, you know, at least three drugs in patients that are possibly going to be super important. And so if you project in, that out... In phase three clinical trials, basically. So they're they're in early stage testing, yeah. um, but they're they're in patients. And so we will see results on efficacy for some of them at the, by the end of this year. And these are anti-aging drugs? Anti-aging drugs of various stripes. So so all of them are being first tested for specific disease. None of them are going to the clinic for right, aging. Right, because I think that's a, it's a, there's a branding to be done here, isn't there? Well, I think there's kind of like, you know, two ways of looking at it. One is a PR thing. Like, you know, we're, we're pushing kind of like the cause longevity. The other is just pragmatic. Like we have drugs. We think they work. How can we get them into patients as fast as possible? Because, you know, people are dying. And it's kind of like every day that we wait to get these drugs into people, sort of like you forget in the development process. But it's like literally that's like tens of thousands of lives, depending on the disorder. Maybe it's not like an optimal thing that we have to, you know, for, hack it out by first getting into kind of like, you know, oncology patients and then just expanding right. out. But for most of the companies, the first patient population will be, you know, very high need, but kind of something like an oncology patient or an arthritis patient. You know, aging is kind of something that we'll, we, we're really interested in, but we, we think the, the kind of quickest path is just, you know, go directly for a specific disease. Right. But in theory, the, the drug X would be... Yeah. So the, the, the point is that all of the drugs that we invest in, we think have a, a good shot at impacting more general human health. So, so not kind of number of years of life, but number of years of healthy life. We really screen for that, but then also for things that are able to kind of get into clinic in, in a relatively short time frame. What is the actual, the goal What's the average lifespan of a man and a woman today? <laughs> Here in America, um, between 70 and 80, I think, depending on kind of like what they're eating, how much they exercise. Right. So is the idea that, you know, because the last five to seven years are probably crappy, you know, your kind of body starts to break down in more and more significant ways until you die. Last season of this podcast, we had Aubrey de Grey on, right. who's obviously... <laughs> An interesting character. And he's talking about making us a multi-generational species, living truly basically forever. Is that what you're working toward or is it more back on planet Earth? The way I would say it is we, we want everyone in the world, and we really care about affordability and access, to be able to live as long as they want to in a healthy fashion. And as long as they want to is a really important part of that, I think. 
because like we tend to get caught up in oh like do I live you know two more years or two less years or but I, I think like it's really unfair like there's no way that we can make the call like in sort of San Francisco you know at sort of 2 p.m. on a Monday today what's right for you know somebody in the future in mm-hmm. you know Slovakia like like maybe maybe they require they have a different sort of you know thought about how long they'd like to live but I think we really just care about getting kind of the technology out there and open to as many people as possible. And the fascinating thing is like, you know, if, if there were no technology, then we wouldn't be doing what we're doing now. In the past two decades, so many things have happened to make now the right time for all of us to come together to the point where we have no idea how many extra years of life will be added to kind of a healthy human lifespan. Because the, the technology is kind of like, it, it, it's all happened in the past two decades. We have nothing to train on, no prior data to understand what's going to happen in the next couple decades. In the seven years that I've been in the Valley, you know, starting out, there's this, like, there was this feeling of kind of hopelessness. Like, as you think about drug development, it's so hard. It's so, so hard. And it's 10 years and and it's so expensive. But now just watching those drugs that we saw on a deck in mice kind of, you know, seven years ago and patients today, I think it really changes the mentality around like the magnitude of what, what can be possible. Um, right. Just trying to kind of get to the nut of it then. I mean, what, what is success for you guys? Is it getting a few drugs approved and then seeing how that goes out in the world? Or is it, I don't know, throwing it future into the future, you know, I, I'm 41. <laughs> I can live to healthily to a hundred instead I, of eighty one or whatever. I, I think the base case for success for me would be I start my second career at age forty or fifty. Like I, I do my first career, it's great, but then I go back to college and I start my second career and I have an even better like next fifty years. And then, and then I don't know how many more times I do that, but that there. So we, like the idea of like retirement, for example, is. Exactly. Like you can kind of like, oh, I'm going to do, I'm going to do this (laughs) venture capital thing for a few decades and then I'm going to go do something entirely different. I mean, the one way I'd frame it is, um, you know, a lot of these technologies, they don't only kind of prevent aging and damage, they make you better. So, I mean, would it be possible to enhance cognition, for example? think better than we do today, not just not experience decline in thinking, but but become superhuman in a sense. I think, I mean, that's something that we're fascinated by as well. But just we want everyone in the world to have the choice to live as long as they would like in a healthy fashion. Like that, that's our goal. If you gave everybody a choice, I presume most people would be like, well, I mean, I'm about to have a second kid. I have a young oh, son. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you. I don't want to <laughs> die ever when they're around. Um, or maybe, I, I don't know, I wouldn't obviously, you know, let's not go <laughs> into a dark place. But if the idea is yeah. let people live as long as they want to live, right. who's ever going to say, well, it's a f- I want to die <laughs> at 97? It's a right? fascinating Instead contradiction. 297 actually. or whatever. So, so most people, if you ask them this, they'll say, oh, I wouldn't want to live longer. I most people that. say that. So I personally ask this question or, or have people volunteer the answer, you know, probably like two or three times a day. And 95% of those are, I would want to live longer. But if you run an online poll through like SurveyMonkey or Google surveys and you ask people anonymously, 80% say they'd want to live longer. And so there's a big difference, I think, between what people it's say. It's a social norm. What it feels correct to say. And then what you might really think, and then also I think that many 20% who say they'd still, they still wouldn't want to live longer, how they might think if the technology were available and kind of open to them you know, today. I think it is interesting how, how there's kind of a norm of, of, of this is not a good thing. But then if you kind of watch people's behavior and answers anonymously, there's a very different feeling underpinning all of that. So like I said, I'm 41 and now I wake up and I go down the stairs and I can like feel my ankles. Oh, really? Because I... 
play basketball, oh, play basketball a lot. So I've messed up my ankles quite a bit over the years, but it's just, you can just feel a tightness that even five years ago, I didn't feel. Mm. And I imagine as you get older and all that stuff starts happening, whether it's arthritis, you put on weight, your mind isn't as clear, whatever. I imagine that's when people are like, well, if I can get a superhuman pill, thanks, I'll take that. I mean, I think it's also fascinating because if, if you look across the animal species, there are so many examples of animals that are almost identical that have just like radically different lifespans. Some of them even don't appear to age as far as we can tell. Um, there, there's an animal called the hydra, which is sort of an aquatic animal, and its close kind of relative lives about a week. And the hydra, they've been keeping it in a tank, and I think looked at it for like four years. And they only started to see like small signs of mortality. But so like it 200 times as long or whatever. Exactly. And, and, right. and it, it wasn't even dying. There's a type of a beetle actually where you can, uh, you grow it up until right before it's an adult and then you can de-age it and then re-age it. I'm and sorry, what? <laughs> what do you so mean de-age it? There, so uh, there's this fascinating thing where I think if you change the, the kind of food that the beetle has available... It can reverse its process of development. Is it basically back. like all of us eating kale smoothies? <laughs> Something like that. I don't, I don't remember the exact. I don't remember if it was kale smoothies. Yeah. But but basically, the beetle reverses like aging, and then and then they, so they change the diet, and then it ages again, and they reverse it, and they just kept this beetle going for like years. If you just change basic things, there's some octopi that they lay their eggs and their mouths disappear. They literally disappear, so they can't eat any more food, and so they die quickly. But if you change the signaling so that their mouth stays... Their mouth disappears. It just, it's, it's programmed aging. And so there are all these ways that like evolution's just programmed us to age that we just never, you know, like, we humans never think about. But just all across the animal kingdom, you see this. <laughs> so I'm sure you get this question all the time, but, you know, I mean, I was just saying how, sure, I'd like to, yeah, I can see how people would want to live longer and longer and longer, but should we? Do you see yeah. the advances in science as just part of our natural evolution of being able to, you know, we figured out how to harness fire and invent the wheel, and now we're right. going to figure out how to, you know, live for 500 years? I think it is a fascinating question. So I would punt this to the, the more core principle that I personally hold, which is that I think everyone should have the choice. I think whenever, whenever you have kind of something of that magnitude of, of how long should you live, I really think it comes down to individual choice and individual liberty. Like I think everyone should have the ability, you know, not to be forced by some dictator to live longer or shorter than they would like. And so I really care about things like, you know, being able to choose when you die based on your circumstances. There's just no way we can make that call and, and you know, there's seven billion people out there and understand what their choice would have been in their circumstances. And so the way I see it is like as a technologist, as a scientist, I see stuff in the lab happening today that is so exciting. It's so cool. We can make it happen a lot faster. To me, it's kind of an inevitable thing. The only question then is, well, you know, how do we get that you know, happening as fast as possible so that all the people who, who are dying today because they don't have access to technology, at least in the future, will have the choice to be able to use things to improve their health. So the idea is, or the kind of the underlying conceit is that when we die will be a choice. Exactly. So I, I don't know for how long it'll be a choice, right? <laughs> maybe, maybe you hit a certain age and it's like, well, okay, now we, we've, we've had right. things for you up until this age, but not past then. But really for us, it's that you, you would never, of course, be forced to do anything that you didn't want to do, but you should have the option to be able to live as long as suits you. My dream is in the future, our major problem will be getting this technology cheap enough and distributed enough that everyone can have access to it. Right. A God pill. <laughs> I think a god pill would be something a bit more platonic in nature, like <laughs> the Republic, like you know. Yes, yes. 
And so you have, th- I think it's $37 million. Is that right? In your funds? Exactly. So, so we have, uh, we raised uh, 23 last year. We had four from the first fund. Then we had another 10 for the accelerator. So this stuff as, for example, Unity Biotech, which Ned David runs, and they're doing lots of really interesting stuff around senescent cells, which we, we can talk about. They've raised like $200 million. Your whole fund is 37. Why is it so small? Yeah, so, so here's the interesting thing. One of the fascinating things about our first fund was watching how very small amounts of money, but at kind of the right time in the company's history, like right at the start, being as helpful as we could to the founders at very important points was actually hugely leveraged in, outpa- in impact. Each company that we invested in, in the round that we invested sometimes even would raise you know, 30 to 50, but we just saw how you know, small amounts of capital at the right time, at the right place, and believing in somebody allowed them to then go raise a lot of money very quickly. And so it wasn't like the money wasn't there. It was like nobody, but like no people want to invest in stuff that seems validated, that has yeah. some backing behind it. And so we realized that's where the problem was. And so that's why we focus on that specific part of the company formation process with age one is because if I'm a grad student, how on earth do I have the gumption to say I can go start a project company? Like if I, if I think, even think that I get beaten down, you know, it's really hard to do great science. I'm used to having, you know, experiments fail. It's hard to get the self-confidence and the, the gumption to go out there and say, I'm just going to start a biotechnology company and that, that's something that I can do. And it's becoming more normal now, but I think we forget just how people that are not on software, they're, they're not supported to go do this. Yeah. And so our major focus is just trying to allow every possible potential founder out there who could start a company, but isn't today because they don't feel that they're empowered to, to give them the kind of like, you know, first push. It, it is like zero to one and one to many. Zero to one, insanely hard. One to many, definitely an order of magnitude easier than just like that first. Right. That it's first like step. developing the, the drugs for HIV, for example. Exactly. Initially, I think, I don't know how much, how many billions went into that, but whatever it was, 10, 15 years later, you can get these quite cheap drugs that people can take on a daily basis and they're, it's accessible to a lot of people. Exactly. Like you have the first step and then you, you swing out to like affordability and access. Got you. Who are your investors? Our investors. So our investors are kind of a, a set of folks. You know, some of them have been with us from the start. For age one specifically, um, you know, Mark Andreessen, uh, Felicis, Collaborative Fund, and a, and a few others are investors. In individuals. Us. Is it mostly most, mostly individuals? Uh, so for age one, it's a mix of individuals and venture funds. Uh, for longevity funds, a mix of kind of you know some fund of funds and some individuals. Because here there does seem. To, I mean, to your point around just over this last five ten years, you know, this isn't a new idea, of course. People have this feeling about longevity that, oh, it's something that we've talked about for a while. I mm. read a, I saw a Time magazine cover with longevity on it 10 years ago. I guess the science is still happening, but somehow we haven't seen longevity yeah. make it to market. I think there really is this feeling. And, and recently you've seen a bullish investment, but, but still there's this feeling that, oh, we've talked about this before. I think the really fascinating thing is from, from the inside of the field, so much has changed in the past couple of years. Engineering things have changed across all of drug development that make things possible this year to do that weren't ever possible before. That affects longevity as a subset of drug development, but I think it makes a lot of things possible that just weren't a decade ago. I think people really miss that. Give me two examples of things that have like, I don't know if like the cost of just sequencing a genome is that's how significant that is or just the rise of machine learning or, you know, 
cloud-based computing that is just so much cheaper than it was. I don't know if there is it things like that that you're talking about that have changed. I mean, one basic thing would be you know, approvals in gene therapy. You have you have the first kind of major approvals in gene therapy coming out the past couple of years. What is gene therapy? That is so gene therapy is an incredibly important therapeutic modality. The concept is to, to change a gene in your body. Right. But you know, basically, you're saying I, there's a gene that's wrong, and I want to go change it. And that's important because there are an enormous number of diseases that are caused by a single gene, and we know exactly we know exactly what causes. You them. know the gene. One right. gene is messed up. So you know the you target, know and is. you can find that there's drugs now for, to that target that gene. Exactly. But the problem is, it's hard to go and change the gene. And so people tried to do this in the 1990s, and there were some safety problems with the first generation. And so it was kind of the field took a long time to really emerge. But the past couple of years have been the first ever kind of major approvals in this field. And it's a huge deal because we're now changing this basic property of ourselves. We're going to be able to fix diseases completely that for which we know that the kind of cause. And that, that is insanely exciting. Like Pop. what disease is? One uh, would be Duchenne's muscular dystrophy. So it's sort of, uh, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of DMD, but it's kind of like yeah. one of these major disorders. And we know exactly what causes that, right? And there's a gene therapy that's in what, in testing now for that? Or? Exactly. So there, there are several other kind of nucleic acid-based approaches, but there, there's kind of like the, this whole suite of things coming along for that disease. Because we know the cause, there's a, a much higher likelihood of it being kind of adequately treated than, than you know, for most right. of the disorders where there's a lot of... And these, these treatments, is it effectively, say, your, it's like, you know, if we use the car analogy, you know, your transmission's out. Do you change the transmission or do you change the car into a plane? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not sure I entirely understand the car analogy. Um, <laughs> but in terms but, of like, well, I guess I'm trying to understand like, how do you change a gene through drugs? One way to do this is is you can actually take a virus, and viruses are very good at putting new genetic information into your genome. Right. And you can use the virus to switch out things in your genome, right? And right. you can imagine CRISPR has also, or kind of the whole set of genetic technologies have like a huge impact yeah. on this as well. Yeah, because viruses can change you forever. If you get a bad one. Right, exactly. But there's, right. there's also this you know, specific engineered class of viruses whose only point is to deliver into your cell you know, a new version of a gene or kind of some, some updated. So that's been incredibly exciting. You know, people have this idea that sequencing was kind of like a thing that happened in you know, two th- the early 2000s. And then, gosh, we haven't seen the returns of that. But I think you know, like that cost incredible amounts of capital, hundreds of millions you know, for, for single genomes. And the cost of that has dropped to the point where I can now go, you know, sequence a full genome for less than a thousand dollars. There are all these things like people kind of. And the first genome I think costs like three and a half billion or something. Right. So, like, yeah. And like also, you know, the, the time and 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 also the fact that we never have actually had the the full human genome because the parts of the human genome that we we still don't know what they what they say because it's, it's technically difficult to do this. Right. So they kind of like did a patchwork job, but I, I think the important point is like all this stuff has been happening. And we hear about it, and so we get immune to it. But the point is, like, from an engineering perspective, many things have changed specifically technically in the past couple of years, but it's like, okay, now we can go and sequence 200 mammalian genomes. Was that possible, you know, a decade ago? No, not, not by any means of the imagination. Right. I think that's really important. That's where the excitement for us comes from, because it's sort of like, you know, we think that this stuff is inevitable, but we're, like, we're just seeing all these things converge to the point where it's like, okay, well, we see seven years in what's already happened from a very different technical point, but, you know, still exciting stuff. Okay, now what will happen in seven years? Right. And so we're super excited for that. Just looking at kind of this idea of longevity or anti-aging or whatever terminology you want to use, can you just give a, like, I don't know, a couple, two, three examples of where we might see these changes first or or more to the point, where the kind of interesting areas are that, you know, whether it's senescent cells 
and if we can kind of accurately target senescent cells, what does that mean? People say, well, we're working on longevity and nobody really understands what that means except, oh, you live a lot longer, but what is it, you know, what are the steps in that chain or the kind of interesting things that we might see coming up of all of a sudden you won't have to deal with arthritis anymore? One fascinating thing for us, and this is something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, is there are already drugs on market that we know impact mouse lifespan. Like they make mice live longer, between 10 and 20% longer. To some degree, you know, what we're working on are kind of a variety of approaches on, at the earlier stage, but we also look at those drugs and we're like, wow, they're already approved and being taken by humans. Are they having an impact? Mm-hmm. How can we test that? So that's a whole other like interesting part of it. But I, I think for us, there are kind of two major categories. One is, you know, we talk about like programmed aging, right? Where like the octopus loses its mouth and like that's just, it's really hard to keep living yeah. if you lose your mouth. And so maybe, And our programmed aging is, I don't know, arthritis or... Menopause. Very fascinating menopause. example, right? You know, you yeah. have this very timed event where health gets acute, very, a lot, a lot worse acutely. It's kind of like, it's not a gradual thing. It's like you have all these clocks turn on and everything gets way worse at a very specific time point. That's kind of causal. The, the menopause, menopause hits and basically your health gets worse. Many different sort of you know parts of health get worse, but they get worse in a very accelerated fashion. Okay. So it's not like kind of, you know, some gradual process keeps going. It's like, you know, there's, there's, there's something that is locked being turned on at that very specific time point. So there's programmed aging. There's also just, you know, senescent cells, for example. We don't know if those are kind of, you know, programmed aging. They might just be kind of, you know, an accidental kind of, you know, accumulation of very old cells that are are still doing things that they shouldn't. They accumulate in the joints and all of a sudden your knee is balky and it hurts. Exactly. But so a question there is, can we identify all these different things that are getting worse? And are these new technologies that have come out in the past couple of years sufficient to allow us to actually get rid of them? Where maybe 10 years ago, we would have known what the things were, but not how to go after them. Got you. And so is there any research? I mean, you you mentioned menopause. Is there any research going into basically turn off menopause or turn off the, (laughs) turn off the, the, the bad side effects of it? That's an area we've been super fascinated by. We're we're doing a lot of research to try and find interesting technologies there. There's definitely a lot of fascinating stuff there. But I think the most interesting thing is, is there anything generalizable? Like, are there any aspects of menopause where we learn more about the clock that is driving it? And that might give us some insight into kind of the other clocks that the body has that are a little bit hard to put your finger on if you don't have that acute kind of thing to go look at. And then just stepping back... This idea of kind of focusing on age as a thing in and of itself rather than consequences of aging, whether it be arthritis, dementia, whatever. That feels like that's an important shift. If, yes. in, if in like the respectable scientific community, we can actually look at aging as its own kind of affliction that requires research and inquiry. The frame shift from aging is an amorphous kind of process to, you know, when I was a kid, this is what went through my mind was, oh, okay, cancer is bad, but, but aging, aging is kind of like the meta disease. Like if you cure aging, then you, you, you get all the other diseases for free. Once you feel that, it's really hard to think about working on anything else. I think it might take like kind of some distance away from the current way that medicine's practiced to kind of have that ability to shift in thought. Yeah. Because it's really not a framing that's used today. I was going to say, you, that's like pushing a very big rock up the hill. <laughs> exactly. It, it just really is interesting. You know, if you look at all the research, there's, you know, the first ever genetic mutation to impact aging occurred about, was found about 30 years ago. The second was found about 20 years ago. And so the, it almost gives you shivers that like the field of understanding the space is, is relatively recent. But is it, I mean, and we've kind of talked around it before, but isn't this just like... 
what's supposed to happen. No, like there, we, I mean. What do you mean, no? Oh, just I like, mean, this is know. the way it's always been, and I don't so, know if that's I, a re- reason, I, but. I think this is, this is really fascinating. If you look at 46 different species of you know, mammals, birds, plants, if you, if, you, if you look at 46 different mammalian species and how they age, humans have the most steep mortality curve. And the fertility drops off. But there are some species... What does that mean, the st- have a steep mor- mortality curve? Your mortality is your, your, your chance of dying yeah. that year. Okay. And for us, it increases. Our, my chance of dying... Dramatically as we get older. Exactly. Dramatically okay. as we get older. Okay. But not all animals age. Not all animals age. Some animals, as far as we can tell, we haven't seen them age. Maybe they do over long periods of time, but we've never seen them age. And number two... Not all animals age in the same way. Many of the animals that we're looking at, their mortality goes down with age, fertility increases, or it stays constant and we, we just don't see it go anywhere. It kind of like does different curves. You know, it's sort of like we assume, we're anthropocentric, we assume as humans yeah. that our curve is the curve that every animal But I haven't, has. I haven't, can't think of a single animal that I, and I haven't studied animals greatly, but <laughs> I can't think of a single animal that does not age. Tortoises, we've never, we haven't seen mortality like greatly increase, you know, after, even after 100 years, just still kind of like going. The, the important point here is the mortality, right? Because a lot of these animals, you know, they die, but they die from accidents or kind of, you know, natural causes. And so the major response to this is, oh, well, you know, they do age, but we've, we've just never seen, you know, when it starts to kick in. But it's fascinating because, because like, you know, the, there are animals that are so similar, like we were talking about the mm-hmm. Navy Mars and rats, but just is our physiology inherently constraining? And the answer if you look at the, at the animal species is, is no. Animals with very similar physiology live vastly different life cycles. What's up with that? What it's telling us is that A, aging is malleable. And number two, we humans are anthropocentric. We think that the way that we age is the way that all animals, all living things age. But it's just not true. I mean, I think that's the major, that's the huge update. It's sort of like, if every animal had an exponential mortality curve, my prior on like our ability to go do this would be, mm. would be far lower. Right. <laughs> it's kind of mind-bending, but I mean, I... I mean, if we've been living for however long humans have been humans, it's been ever thus. And I know that we are, our life expectancy has increased dramatically, obviously, with advances. Right. Is the answer then, the way you see it, that this is just the next step? This is like, you know, we got penicillin and all of a sudden now people aren't dying of things that, you know, are now totally preventable. If I look at all these different animals, mm-hmm. okay, well, that's great. Some of them are longer, some of them are shorter, but we're humans. We're constrained to our biology. What can we do? And so the question is, can you take an animal and change its genes or its environment to make it live longer? And the thing that we didn't know for the longest, you know, for the past 2,500 years, is that possible? But in 1983, the first ever paper was published showing that we could genetically mutate, in that case, a worm, and increase its lifespan by 50%, subsequently up to tenfold. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, we empirically can take animals, change their genes, and make them live longer. And the same family of genes makes mice live longer. So you can mutate the same gene in mice and will live about 60% longer than normal. That's the answer. It's sort of like in humans, there could be some magical human-specific thing that we've never found that's biologically going to like concern us. Couldn't rule that out. But if you ask the question, like, is it possible, given a specific physiology, you know, now that we know about the diversity of animal aging, to make that animal live longer. I mean, we've done that in every animal species we've tried in. Like, we've made them all live longer. And this is just with genetics. Very right. crude tools. And so, yes, as far as we can tell, it's, it, it, like, it's not infeasible. With the technology that we have today, you know, gene therapy, for example, what is gene therapy? It's changing genes. That's where the excitement comes from. And that research was published in 1996. 
and it takes about two decades to elucidate, right? So it's sort of like you really are, the stuff really is very, it's very close to where we're coming in translationally. Right. It's like a couple decades in and just now being, I mean, the first drugs for patients today. And so that's, that's kind of where the excitement comes from. And so when you're raising funds, and I imagine you have these type of conversations, or they're probably much more um, <laughs> granular with uh, people who are potentially going to give you money. What percentage of people are like, this just doesn't sound like this is a feasible idea? Because yeah. there's obviously a lot of quacks <laughs> out there, and I've met a few yeah. of them through my reporting of various things, promising all kinds of crazy stuff. I think I've really changed my mind a lot. I think, I think people invest in things that, they, that other people invest in. That's really, I think, a lot of how the value works. And so when I first moved off to the Valley, I would go around with my spreadsheets and my charts, and I'd make these arguments about the science, and I'd get very excited about it, and just nobody would... It, it wasn't just be really like, bl- like, blank. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and I understand that. Like, you know, if somebody came to me and were pa- was passionate about something that I didn't have deep expertise in, do I have the time to go and check their claims? Like, no. Right. How do I tell that, that these, these, these are the correct claims? That's so why I think our only job now is to get the idea that this is something that's, that would be valuable to do into the consciousness of as many people as possible. And then they can all go evaluate the evidence for themselves, right? Like, you know, if the people that were super excited about joining the field are, are sort of as competent as we hope they'd be, they will come to their own conclusions. But I think our, our only goal right now is just getting kind of the idea and awareness of this concept out there and then having as many people as possible evaluate the evidence kind of on their own terms. The idea that it's inevitable that we'll be able to choose when we die at some point. That, that's our goal. I think that, yeah. that, that is definitely our goal. I think the idea that we want to get out there is that if you want to go and cure cancer or any of the other diseases of aging, you should work on aging. And that's going to be the thing that really moves the needle. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Laura for taking the time to talk about all of that. It's kind of hard to all take in but if there's a pill or some kind of treatment that makes me feel like i'm 20 rather than 41 i'd certainly be interested and i'm sure a lot of you would as well i will be back next week as usual in the meantime uh, you can find me as always in the newspaper the sunday times online at thetimes.co.uk on the twitter's at Danny Fortson. You can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk and please take an ever so brief moment in Apple Podcasts. Give a rating and review. Helps other people find the show. Helps keep me in a job. Anyhow, be back next week. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.